really, as we look at it, we're faced with, I think, two possibilities. One is that we really try to reboot all these other things, nuclear and so on. The other is that we try and make wind and solar and, and electric vehicles and battery storage grow even faster so that they can do the, they can make up for the shortfall in these other things. Now is the time to turn rage into action. Every fraction of the degree matters. Every voice can make a difference and every second counts. I wanted to panic. I wanted to act as if the house was on fire, because it is. From the pandemic to climate change, going it alone is simply not an option. For those who have eyes to see, for those who have ears to listen, and for those who have a heart to feel, 1.5 is what we need to survive. Welcome back to the second episode of our podcast, Accelerating Climate Solutions by the Foundation's Platform F20 and the Global Alliance for the Future of Food. I'm Stefan Schurich, Secretary General of the Foundation's Platform F20, and I'm truly delighted to co-moderate this podcast together with my dear colleague, Bruce Richardson, Executive Director of the Global Alliance for the Future of Food. Thanks, Stefan. In this podcast, we set out to unearth the hard topics at the heart of the debate about the climate crisis and dig into what's holding back solutions from taking root. Our last podcast explored the ongoing war in Ukraine and how it is compounding the world's food, energy and security crises, as well as what the role of the G7 is in living up to its responsibility to deliver leadership and initiating much needed systemic change. Today, we focus on the opportunities and challenges shaping the future of renewable energy. We are delighted to have this discussion with a true expert on renewable energy. Let's welcome our guest, Richard Black. Thanks very much, Ruth. Nice to be with you. Richard, it's really, really great to have you. And uh, we are truly honored that you took one day out of your holidays and um, be with us in our podcast here. Let me just give a brief introduction. You co-founded the Energy and Climate Intelligence Unit in the UK, and you served as their director from 2014 to 2020. You're currently a senior associate there, so that means you're basically still working with ECIU. You also hold an honor research position at Imperial College London, and your background obviously is not in the energy per se, the energy question per se, but you're a journalist and you've been broadcasting with the BBC. You've worked for the BBC World Services in several roles. Richard, we are glad that you could make it. Many thanks for joining us. Ruth. Yeah, Richard, fantastic to have you with us. And we always begin this podcast by asking our guests the following question. If you could press a button and change one thing, what would it be? Well, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a great question to begin with. And I think with renewable energy, as with many other things in life that are not connected with energy and climate change, if you could press one button, it would be to have people make decisions on the basis of evidence and not on the basis of, of sort of predetermined political position or an out-of-date belief that they've garnered in a chance conversation in a coffee room somewhere. So that's my, that's my button. I'm going to create a button for evidence-based policymaking. So let's park that button and make sure that uh, we push it hopefully pretty soon in yes. terms of making yes. um, evidence-based political decision-making a default of 
actually decision-making politics. Anyway, it brings us back directly to our main theme today, which is on the energy transition and what is actually holding us back. And obviously, we said that we have high uh, confidence that our analysis on the 1.5 degrees trajectory uh, and on global warming is quite solid. Uh, we also know what we need to do to remain under this dangerous benchmark of 1.5. And there are basically two main things. I know it's a complex thing, but basically it's two things. It's restoring and protection of nature, including transforming the food system, and it's stopping the combustion of fossil fuels and upscaling renewable energy. If we did these two things. We were you know, we were having a very good chance to remain under this 1.5 degrees benchmark. So my question to you, Richard, is could you elaborate a bit further on what the impact of renewables would actually be to the Paris Climate Agreement and also not to forget to the UN Sustainable Development Goals, to the UN Agenda 2030? I think the, the renewable energy is primarily concerned with the second part of your of your prescription there, um, Stefan. Obviously, the, the the replacement of fossil fuel burning, and so if you're not going to burn fossil fuels, then obviously you have to do something else, and that something else could include nuclear energy. It could include burning fossil fuels with carbon capture and storage. It could include various forms of renewable energy, such as hydropower, uh, geothermal, biofuels, for example. But if you you look at all of those in the real world what is actually being built at the moment actually it's wind and solar power that are being built and actually the success is extraordinary over the last 20 odd years um, this is an analysis that came out from the ember think tank earlier this year the amount of energy generated by wind and solar has been increasing uh, exponentially at about 20 percent per year and so initially, that was 20% of almost nothing, which is why we didn't see it. We didn't see it eating into demand for fossil fuels. But interestingly, if you fast forward that to 2030, you can get to the stage where about 40% of our electricity is being generated by wind and solar. It's now around 10%. So startling growth will come over the next eight years, provided that historical trend uh, continues. Meanwhile, if you look at those alternative things, nuclear power, carbon capture and storage, geothermal, biofuels, we do not see that similar rate of growth. And it's not really sustainable. It's not really viable in all of those areas for different reasons that we will see a sudden acceleration. And the beautiful thing about wind and solar power and batteries is that as you build more of them, they get cheaper. This follows something called called Wright's Law, where basically every time you sort of double the volume that are produced, the price falls by a similar amount. And so you have this situation where more is built, price falls, so more is built, so the price falls more, and so on and so on and so forth. So you put all that together. If we are going to really reduce the burning of fossil fuels, it's going to be wind and solar power that do the bulk of the heavy lifting. So really, they are absolutely at the heart of the Paris Agreement, that we cannot deliver the Paris Agreement temperature goals without wind and solar. And luckily, so far, they are performing. There are blocks, of course, there are blocks, of course, um, um, and we should talk about those as well. But but, but so far, the, you know, the things are looking, looking reasonably good. Does that take us to 1.5? No, it doesn't. 
um, last year, the International Energy Agency came up with a roadmap of, 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 to, 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 to the 1.5 Celsius target. And they put in various growth rates for different things. Now, wind and solar are doing their bit of the bargain. They're increasing at the rate that the IEA says is necessary in their scenario to hit 1.5. The problem is that the other things aren't. Nuclear isn't. Carbon capture and storage isn't. Energy efficiency isn't. So, you know, really, as we look at it, we're faced with, I think, two possibilities. One is that we really try to reboot all these other things, nuclear and so on. The other is that we try and make wind and solar and, and electric vehicles and battery storage grow even faster so that they can do the, they can make up for the shortfall in these other things. So that, I think, is the very big picture on where we are with renewables and the Paris Agreement. And, you know, just turning to the 2030 agenda, obviously, without controlling climate change, you know, that in the end, there will be no sustainable development. So that we, you know, we've known this since, since, since the Brooklyn Commission, really. But it's also, you know, en- energy access. Uh, a few years ago, the IEA produced a report on electrification in Africa, for example. And they suggested that about half of the electrification that would be desirable in rural Africa would not come from your traditional grids, uh, nationwide grids fueled by big power stations. It would come from off-grid solar and wind and microgrids and so on. Why? Because it's so much easier and so much more portable. It can be done at a variety of scales uh, with a variety of actors leading it, including community groups, including businesses, including councils and so on and so forth. Now, that was a few years back. The economics are even more in the favour of these things now. So if you did that report again, you'd come down even more. There's also a democratisation element here, often wind and solar, not always, but often they can be done without the involvement of massive corporate actors here. And in terms of peace and security, well, we're seeing right now one war that has, you know, a, a, a lot to basically one petrostate uh, that is that is using the dollars that it's gained, the copious amounts of dollars that it's gained to wage war on another. There does seem to be a correlation between the aggression of states, the military spending, and whether they have, you know, copious amounts of fossil fuels or not. Um, so, you know, in an overall, one should be looking out for. For a, for a world that is a bit more peaceful and secure if we did have this, this transition. Is it going to help with other problems of development? Not necessarily. It doesn't necessarily help you out with health, with education, with poverty alleviation, with access to water and so on. But just by making modern energy available in different in different parts of the world and, and reducing the huge power of petrostates and huge corporations, I think, you know, you can see that it can be a, an enabler, although clearly that's not a given Richard, you've set me up for our next question beautifully. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> which is, a, like doing which that. is about systems. Um, mm. And you've started to paint a bit of a picture about the interconnectedness between this energy transition and other things. I don't know if you know the small documentary by Dr. John Liu about the farmers in the Rugezi uh, Highland wetlands. So the story goes like this, that poor farmers were trying to eke out a living through farming. And as a consequence, by necessity, they overworked the land Um, They were forced into the Rugezi wetlands to farm there. As the wetlands were drained, the river silted up and dried up. Then three hours downstream in Kigali, the hydro stations dependent on those rivers couldn't produce enough electricity. The government had to rent diesel-powered generators at a cost of $65,000 a day. The country had to 
go into debt to banks. An already poor population had to pay three times as much for electricity. Of course, greenhouse gases and gas emissions went up, etc. Fortunately, the end of the story is very positive in that the government chose not to follow sort of a silver bullet solution, but actually went to the root cause and helped the farmers restore the, the highlands, the plateaus. They got them out of the wetlands. The wetlands got restored, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I find the story absolutely fascinating being mm-hmm. a systems thinker and a, and a learner of systems. And it just paints a picture, you know, in essence, how all these things are connected. So you've already suggested a few things, you know, this is connected to democracy. This is connected to peace and security. This is connected to a number of key issues. You suggested it's maybe not going to be as connected to other things. But can you just help paint a picture for us, just in terms of those systems connections, how the energy transition is connected to things like food systems, humanitarian efforts, (laughs) peace and conflict, etc.? Sure. Well, I mean, I think if you reduce the amount of fossil fuels being traded in the world, then that is going to have a net benefit on on peace and security, because um, clearly a lot of wars have been have been waged. A lot of uh, a lot of pressure is leveraged uh, over over fossil fuels and so on and so forth. Um, there are other things that I think work on a more local basis. Um, I mean, this may be a slightly cliched vision, but if you bring, you know, solar power to a village that didn't have electricity before, that can improve your health system because it's then possible to store vaccines, for example, and medicines that need to be stored uh, at low temperatures because you can now have a fridge. You can uh, improve the education there because now there can be electric light in the evening that wasn't there before if you install batteries along with your solar panels. And uh, a a few years back, a a former colleague of mine went to Bangladesh and, and made a short movie about the rooftop solar uh, success in Bangladesh, where something like at the time something like eight million households had installed rooftop solar, and what this showed really was that I think you know so- solar power can be the kind of mobile phones of the uh, energy transition, just as a uh, someone would not anymore choose to wait for a landline to be installed because you know, in a lot of countries you'd be waiting months if not years and it might never ever arrive, and when it did arrive, the landline might be blown down in the in a gale, you know, when, when the hurricane comes through, you're not going to wait for a grid connection if you don't have to, because it's just easier and quicker to go and get your solar panel and put it on your roof as well. So there's all of that. And then I think um, that there's also uh, su- supply chains as well for for wind and solar and batteries. And, and clearly, there, there can be downsides here as well, because, you know, the, the, there are human rights issues and so on that one has, one has to consider. But overall, if you have an oil-based uh, economy, then basically a few countries control that, the ones that export copious quantities of oil. And there are very, very few of them that actually do. But every country's businesses, businessmen and businesswomen can set up factories and make solar panels and wind turbines. It's not any more difficult than, you know, making making a TV or making a fridge or something like this. So to a certain extent, you can sort of democratise the whole process because you're making stuff rather than being reliant on continually getting stuff out of the ground. Yes, you have to get minerals out of the ground in certain places, but basically once you've got them, you don't have to go, you don't have to get them out of the ground again and again the next day and the next day and the next day. So basically we're basing it on manufacture rather than extraction, which which means you can do it in many, many, many different parts of the world. So sort of spreading the economic benefits around the world. So Richard, I hear in your voice and in your responses um, a certain 
optimism. Definitely. Got to be optimistic. <laughs> I'm hearing, you know, sort of a spirit of, of the possible. <laughs> I share that with you and I think Stefan does as well. What's holding us back? Why are we mm. not advancing faster than we are? Well, I don't think there's one single reason. And I think the balance of reasons uh, differs, you know, depending where you are in the world and so on. But I think part of it has been a lack of belief. You still do hear politicians, even in Europe, suggesting that a net zero transition in energy is going to be a net cost to the economy. It's a ridiculous point of view, but you do that is still there. Um, so that's one thing. Um, I think that, that it, 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 there's not universal acceptance that you can you can build a successful energy system on on renewable power. There's there's a, there's a view in some quarters that it's oh I don't know it's not it's not it's, it's not manly enough it's not robust enough it's not strong enough it'll it'll give way kind of when the wind doesn't blow and uh, and so on and so forth which is again is clearly ridiculous there are there are stacks of stacks of studies out there showing that you can have renewable 100% renewable based systems in 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 many countries obviously you know when there there are limits to how fast an industry can expand and you know it does require scaling up in manufacture and in supply chains and so on which which does take take a bit of time but but it's led by demand and the more demand there is the faster those supply chains will will come through i think in in europe and some other parts of the world as well there are issues with with planning uh where where basically you know it can take 10 years to get a wind farm approved and that's absolutely ridiculous ridiculous thing we just need to really speed that up governments you know need to absolutely commit to that. There are some sort of geopolitical fears. I, I think they're largely unfounded, but you can see why they arise. In Europe, for example, it's to do with the dominance of China in the supply chain for um, for particularly for rare earth metals and, and so on. It's the fact that, you know, there are not lithium mines along every country road. Um, they only exist in a few places. So there are worries, I think, about swapping, you know, reliance on one country for reliance on another. But I think it's not very well founded because, you know, the history of mining suggests that basically when there's demand for it, then then companies go out and look for it. And that's actually what we're seeing at the moment with the investment of the, in the mining industry in going and looking for new things. Then to some extent, when you've got, for example, again, in, in Europe, we have an electricity system. It works pretty well for for customers and we'd have power stations and some of them are not that old. So clearly there's a reluctance to change which in some quite some quarters would be seen as change for the sake of change. Why would we be closing perfectly good power stations? So all of those things, I think, you know, come together. And then we have lobbying, which is a completely different ballgame. And uh, we know that lobbying exists from fossil fuel companies, from energy utilities. And, and in some countries, you know, the fossil fuel company is basically part of government. And, and the national coffers of a country like Saudi Arabia are largely reliant on fossil fuel income. And, uh, you know, we've seen President Putin and, and his allies basically boasting about the amount of fossil fuel income they have and how important it is for the Russian economy um, in recent months. So, so that's, so there's all of that. I think it's the feasibility is the single biggest thing that there is a lack of understanding that a system that's based on wind and solar and batteries uh, and other forms of storage and renewables that that can actually work and deliver us all the advantages of a modern energy system so that's one thing we have to just break is that cycle of disbelief 
couldn't more agree with that. And I know, Ruth, you've got another question to come up, but I just wanted to come in on one particular point that you mentioned, just sharing those lessons learned here from Germany and the early days of the energy vendor, the energy vendor, or the uptake of renewables. And you mentioned planning and sort of stupid rules of distances between wind turbines or you name it. And I can only second that. And I think um, planning is a subject of political will. So if you do have the political will, and we see this just happening right now here in Germany, being faced with the what they call the gas crisis, which actually is a crisis you know, that uh, uh, results of tens of years believing that the gas delivery will be secure and safe and we can always build on it. We knew that that was an issue before. So planning is really a subject of political will. So if we had this political will, planning would follow suit, I guess. Yep, I, I, I would largely agree with you there. I mean, there are going to be places where people will justifiably object if you want to build a massive wind farm you know if you have an area of natural beauty where people really really appreciate it for its beauty and you want to cover it in a wind to, in wind farm then clearly people will object and and that's and that's fine and they should have that right to object absolutely but that is not everywhere and again the coming back to the evidence the evidence is that people are overwhelmingly acceptive of wind farms and solar farms even in close to close to their houses and where they live it's just that a lot of politicians are not in the end aware of that yeah and again referring to germany uh, when you look at germany it really matters whether you can actually participate in that uptake of renewables mm. and make a little money when you see the wind turbine turning yeah and you see yeah. your bank account turning as well at the same time that yeah. changes your perception of a wind turbine dramatically so the political mechanism that you have to establish somehow is um, should give room to let people participate in that. Richard, you talked about planning geopolitical fears. We've talked about evidence. You're a journalist and a communicator. What about communications, particularly right now, um, where a lot of households, people and households are struggling with the price of heating and running their homes? What do you think um, this moment means for how climate action solutions like the energy transition are framed and communicated to people? If you went back sort of 10 years and you asked the question, why should we switch to renewables? You would have had pretty much one answer, which was for climate change. And then it's become progressively clear that we have another reason, which is economics. And actually, along the way, we've collected public opinion as another reason. And I think what this whole Russia invasion of Ukraine has done is created yet another reason, because it basically shows that unless you switch to having some form of homegrown energy, then you, your country is always going to be uh, able to be held to ransom by the people that are supplying you the fossil fuels. And right now, that is Russia. But you can see that if, you know, if, if for example, Europe made certain choices for the provision of, of, L, of LNG, uh, you could end up reliant on a different country uh, whose politics might be equally horrible in 10 years time. So basically, the only so I think it's just given yet, yet another reason, basically, for making that switch to to renewables. 
And it's been interesting to see some of the language that's been used by, you know, by, by politicians and by renewable energy companies, you know, basically you switch to wind, switch to solar, you are undercutting Putin, you're undercutting the Russian war machine. And that's completely, that's completely true. I think the where we have to be very careful about this, though, is in the sort of timescales, um, because doing all the things that would be very sensible to, to do, such as building our energy efficiency, such as accelerating the build-up of uh, wind and solar, they're not going to make things much better next winter. And people that are struggling, it is going to take time for these advantages to feed through. So I think there does need to be some honesty in the way that this is messaged uh, as well. And clearly the mechanisms that are needed to support people in the short term are very, very different. But I think, you know, there, there was already massive support for for switches to renewables and for investment in energy efficiency and so on. And I suspect the current uh, the current issue with Russia is simply going to increase that. We just elaborated, Richard, on that fact that the current fossil fuel based dependency somehow unveils or um, exhibits the dependence. On, and the vulnerability of a country uh, mm. on other countries. Um, and obviously that harvesting the wind and the solar energy would certainly make us less independent, uh, albeit, as you said, not entirely when you look mm. at manufacturing or rare earths or so. One question, one very short question on the question of costs, because whenever we talked energy and energy vendor in Germany in particular, you know, the question on costs came up. And what I found always very useful was to first ask, what do you mean in terms of cost? Are you holding the costs for investments into renewables against a business as usual scenario? Well, then we might continue this conversation. Or are you just looking into the amount of investments needed for uh, renewables? And I've always wondered, and I just, I really noted it down because I wanted to ask you this question. I always wondered why we do not explicitly consider the non-use of renewables as a waste of capital. If this sounds a bit weird, just um, trying to describe it. If you have a rooftop and you would have solar panels available, the day when you put them on the rooftop, you harvest energy and you harvest the solar radiation, you convert it into kilowatt hour and you feed it into the system and it runs down the supply chain over, over days and weeks and months. If you don't do this, it's basically wasted capital because the sun of today and the wind of today cannot be used anymore tomorrow. They're gone. They cannot yeah. be generated. And I always felt it would, you know, it would really make sense to factor that or to factor that into the discussion of costs, because this is called opportunity costs. So costs that may have uh, been there that you need to factor in your price calculation. And you don't do this with renewables, but you should. And this is just a thought that I have. And I just wonder what you think about it. That is completely right. And so interesting, in, in the UK, the uh, the Climate Change Committee, the, the statutory advisory body for the government, when they were giving their advice on whether the UK should set a net zero target, they did this in the area of uh, of transport. They sort of factored in the avoided fuel 
costs. Yeah. And on the basis of that, they concluded that um, for electric vehicles, basically the quicker the transition was made, the better it would be economically uh, for the UK because of those avoided fuel costs. But I, but I absolutely agree with you. And the other thing about um, fossil fuel prices, of course, is that they, they vary enormously. Whereas we're pretty confident of the price that we're going to be paying for wind and solar, usually, because there's usually a contract signed and we know how much we're going to be paying for it. Um, but with, with, with fossil fuels, you, they, they, they spike, they go down, they get spike again. And so either as a national economy or, or even as a car driver, you know, budgeting for all of this is, is, is far more difficult than it would be in an electrified, renewably driven world. The similarities with the food system are shocking. I'm finding it super interesting to hear you talk (laughs) about this. If you just take Ukraine and the threat to our wheat supply, as an Mm. example, (laughs) and you talked about, you know, the honesty of of, um, talking about timescales that, you know, it's not now that we're going to feel the risk of wheat shortages and, and price spikes um, but it will be next year and the year after and the year after. Yes. And as we look at that, we often talk about what are the short-term band-aids that are needed, but then what are the real long-term solutions that are needed? How do we get away from an industrial food system that is really in the vested interest of big companies and mm. democratize the food system in a way that we have more localized um, production, consumption, Anyway, just noting the many, many similarities. At the Global Alliance for the Future of Food, we have a project called Beacons of Hope, where we try to elevate stories of real food systems transformation. It is happening. It's happening now. It's happening quickly. It's happening in beautiful ways around the planet. Richard, from your perspective, what would your beacons of hope in terms of energy transition be? Can you hold up a few for us? Yes, yes, I can. I mean, here in Europe, I'll hold up Denmark, uh, where about half the electricity now comes from renewables, uh, and where Denmark has also, you know, established uh, systems for trading electricity with neighbouring countries as well. So a little sort of microcosm there. Um, I think the UK is another beacon of hope. I mean, if you go back 10 years, you know, coal was providing, you know, tens of percents of electricity. In recent years, it's been one or two percent. And basically, that's largely happened, largely happened because of the advent of, of renewables and so on. A few years ago, I worked with someone from a small Pacific nation called Tokelau. Uh, they're actually, it's actually a protectorate of, of, of New Zealand. But Tokelau basically was 100% renewably powered at that point. Previously, they'd had uh, diesel generators uh, relying on diesel that had to be brought in by ship. And they'd managed to get a loan and basically converted the entire system to solar. And so I'll I'll set that up as a beacon of hope. And there are another a number of Pacific islands and so on that were setting, you know, 100% renewable targets of dates with dates as early as 2025 and, and so on. Because why wouldn't you, frankly, it's just, you know, the the best thing to do potentially a beacon of hope in in south africa i think we're 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 sort of wait and see if this one does materialize but south africa electricity system largely based on coal and copious amounts of coal mining of course to to supply it a creaking laboring aging system both in terms of technology and in terms of working practices and so on hopelessly in debt and so on um a deal that was um brokered at the last uh, UN climate cop to 
to provide international money for a bespoke transition. There, you know, apart, it, the only thing that is holding South Africa back from making this transition is really inertia, on economic grounds, on energy access grounds to avoid, you know, the the rolling blackouts that have played huge chunks of the country, on air pollution grounds, on employment grounds, on climate grounds. It is the thing to do. So. If that transition can go through, then you know that's another one for me. There's probably there's a number more we could we could come up with, but there's just a, there's just a few. And just a quick look on the multilateral decision making channels. Uh, we know that the G7 has been meeting here mm. in Germany um, a couple of weeks ago and concluded on certain decisions also related to climate action on a so-called climate club which is pretty much promoted by our chancellor here and multilateral partnerships uh, just as you just mentioned the so-called just energy transition partnerships and so on so do we see sufficient political will from the G7 or the G20 just also suggesting that when you look on the 1.5 degrees trajectory again and the agreed targets from the Paris Climate Agreement, the G20 would have to conclude in a 70% electricity target by 2030 by renewables. I mean, that sounds very ambitious. It would be three times as much as where they are now, but it is not insurmountable, certainly not. And we've just done a study with um, F20 and with the Uh, University of Technology in Sydney on really looking at these different targets from the G20 countries and suggested that every country should actually just go ahead with very ambitious renewables target. But the question is, do you think that G7 or G20 will deliver or even COP27 will deliver? I'm not massively hopeful if I'm if I'm quite honest. Um and I think that's for that's for a number of reasons. One is that the Russian invasion of Ukraine has not only well it's taken politicians minds away from climate change onto other issues and those include energy security and in order to deal with energy security we're seeing some decisions being taken that are not in the long-term interests of of climate action. I mean, we are seeing, you know, advances in 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 renewables and efficiency uh, as well. But for example, we're seeing, you know, Germany investing in new LNG uh, import infrastructure. For example, that I think has been where the attention has been. We mustn't have an energy supply crisis, um, rather than let's make the right decisions for the long term, which in some ways is kind of understandable, um, I, I suppose. And I think. The, so, so, so basically, we haven't really seen, I don't think, an acceleration of action by the G7. The idea of climate clubs, the idea that you will have kind of groups of countries that will that are like minded that will come together and decide to take action uh, jointly, and perhaps in the end penalise uh, trade with those that don't. I mean, it's not a new idea. It's been uh, William Nordhaus, I think, was the first uh, person to come up with this uh, a while back. I'm slightly worried that it will never quite happen because there will you've got changes of government in certain G7 countries and others that you know one government might want to go in the next government might not might not want to you can have conflict with other uh, agreements uh, WTO for example uh, you could see potentially conflict with with European countries, you could see potentially conflict with EU regulations and the way that EU works as well. And it's one of these ideas that sounds great, but you could actually spend, you know, 10 years trying to make it work before you 
concluded that it can't. You know, a bit like the the old vision of a of a global carbon price, which you know is is my view also never never going to happen for political reasons. The G twenty, I'm I'm less even less optimistic of. To start with, fun- fundamentally, you have a number of countries in the G twenty that do not really want to advance climate action. That I think is holding the holding it back. Also, the G twenty, the the developing country members of the G twenty, I think, would always be looking to um, you know the 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 more advanced economies to provide a lead, and they would argue that the advanced economies are not providing a lead, that they ha- have not they're not putting forward in the main new targets. Uh, you know, for COP27, new NDCs uh, for COP27, and, and and that, you know, they've been looking to buy more gas and buy more coal and so on. So those those countries, you know, I'm thinking about this sort of the Mexicos and the, and, and so on, you know, w- well, if, if, if you're not doing it, then then why should we basically? And and to a certain extent, they, they have a point as well. COP27, I'm less, uh, I, you know, I'm not particularly confident about for a number of reasons. So some of them tied up with the way that the UN process works. And I went to the intercessional uh, meeting in Bonn last month and, and, and looked what was going on there. This is the, the annual meeting that happens in between the big cops uh, with negotiators from different countries, no ministers, but negotiators. There are a lot of processes that are, are just at the beginning of a, of a two-year cycle of talks. And so by the time we got to get to COP27, there'll be one year through a two-year cycle of negotiations. So I don't think we can really expect anything to come out of those because they won't have concluded. And these include things like a global goal on climate adaptation, for example. So basically, we're, we're back to the if, if the negotiations are not going to provide something particularly strong, then we're back to this old nut of political will. And where's the political will? And where's the leadership? And you know, you look and you're not you're not seeing a great deal of it. Joe Biden, is beset by uh, political difficulties, may well have lost, may all be losing Congress around about that time. Uh, the US is clearly way behind on climate finance, but equally it's clear that is there's no hope of that really being reversed because it's going to be impossible for him to get a bill to pay 40, 40 billion a year, which would be about the fair shares through Congress. Not going to happen. The EU is slightly mystifying to me in that the EU constantly, you know, preaches climate leadership and adherence to the multilateral world order and all this sort of stuff. Okay, fine. So governments and and the EU itself have made all kinds of provisions that should accelerate decarbonisation. So we're seeing, you know, speed up in in the rollout of renewables. We're seeing speed ups in the rollout of energy efficiency and electric vehicles and so on. Okay, fine. All of those should add up to a faster rate of decarbonisation. So all they have to do is to add that together, work out what it actually means for decarbonisation, turn that into a new NDC and put it forward for COP. 27. Even if it advances, the, 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 the core target here is basically the, the extent to which they will have cut emissions by, by 2030. And currently that's 55%. Adding up all the new things, even if it makes it 58 or 59% or something, that is a concrete advance that would be showing real leadership and setting a marker down to those uh, other countries that have not done it. But I'm seeing no one in the EU really is, is talking about doing this, but it seems to be an absolutely the simplest, simplest thing to show a little bit of leadership in that. So putting all that together, 
not to, that's not where I'm getting my optimism uh, from. Going back to your your uh, your earlier point, uh, Ruth, that's not where that's well. I'm looking for optimism currently. I've been a big fan of the UN talks for years and years and years, but that's not where I'm getting my optimism from at the moment. So, Richard, I want to pull up one little piece of your answer mm. to Stefan's question, and that is, um, you started talking a little bit about the more developed economies and and developing countries, mm. and for me. This gets a little bit to, you know, what people talk about in terms of just transition. At the Global Alliance, we have seven principles that we abide by in all of our work, including, importantly, equity and inclusion, which, of course, is intimately connected to the sense of justice. And so I'm just wondering, in terms of that just transition related to the energy transition, what does that mean to you? And what are the kind of imperatives or the non-negotiables in terms of a just transition? The phrase just transition is often used in a very uh, shallow way, actually. Uh, and it can mean an awful lot of different things. And I think the first thing it should mean is there actually has to be a transition. If it is delayed because we're worried about, you know, uh, a few dozen coal miners, you know, losing their jobs, then basically everyone else loses. That, that cannot be what we mean by a just transition. So are we talking about, you know, access to energy? Are we talking about jobs? Are we talking about the contraction in national economies where that currently rely a lot on fossil fuel income? Are we talking about skills and so on and so forth? For me, out of all of those, I'm not particularly worried about the jobs side of things. And I may be in a minority here within the climate community. But just as a few, for examples, in in the UK, the oil and gas industry has lost half its workforce in the last 20 years, just through natural wastage and people going off to do other things and work in other parts of the world. That hasn't created any sort of social crisis at all. And so if it loses the other half of its workforce in the next 20 years, I don't expect there to be any massive social issues from that. Way more retail, people working in retail, way more people working in retail have lost their jobs as a result of the advent of online retailing. And I haven't heard anyone talking about, oh, we need a just transition for the retail industry, for example. So why are we worrying about it so much in the energy industry? Sometimes it's presented as like, you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of workers are all going to lose their jobs instantly. They're not. In most parts of the world, you know, people, children will decide not to do the job that their parents did. They'll just decide to do something else. And natural wastage will take care of a great deal of of that, I think. I'm more interested in the sort of positive side of the transition, which is about access to energy, where I think coming back to our examples of rural Africa and so on and and, and other parts of the world where currently they don't have access to energy, the benefits that they can get from, from uh, from uh, from these moves. There clearly are human rights issues involved in mining, and we shouldn't in sort of bit belittle those at all. But I think to start with, you know, all mining, all extractive industry can be done well or or it can be done badly. And, you know, there are equally there are human rights issues in coal mines as well. So the thing is to make sure that where it's done for things like electric car batteries, that it's done it's done well. And in part that is about countries where the mining is done and, you know, we're seeing countries like Australia, for example, and, and Chile, OECD members um, that, are, that are potentially big players here, 
you know, they should they should already have the laws in place that basically prevent human rights abuses from taking place. In countries such as uh, DRC, which is often held up as an example here, I think there's definitely a role for manufacturers. Manufacturers should be signing agreements that there will be no human rights abuses in their supply chains. And if they do that, and they're serious about it, and they enforce it, then basically we will see a massive, massive improvement in that situation already. Where I think the, the biggest issue comes is not necessarily to do with renewable energy. I think the biggest issues we're going to see are in, are in land use, particularly in the, in, in, in the global south, where we have already seen over the last 20 or 30 years land grabs for biofuels forced expulsion of um, of people, including indigenous groups, for the building of hydropower dams, this kind of thing. If we're going to see an expansion in, in biofuels, an expansion in hydropower dams, possibly we're going to see an expansion in the uh, amount of land set aside for nature conservation, and potentially as well, uh, an expansion in the amount of uh, forests that are used for carbon offsetting and carbon absorption. You put that together with an expanding world population where people need to eat and people need to make a living. And that's where I think we could have the real crunch. Richard, very comprehensive answer. Thanks for that. There's a lot more to dive in, in the different points that you raised. I just wanted to have one uh, closing question for this excellent, very insightful conversation. And that is more on the role of civil society or on, you know, who could be doing what in this transition? Then, because obviously we heard that there's not so much optimism resulting from the look at the G7 or the G20 or the COPs at your end, for example. And I just wanted to come back to uh, the book that you wrote um, that I mentioned in the beginning. It's called Denied. And uh, you really looked into the dynamics and into think tanks being established to really hold back any climate action. It really is uh, very, very insightful, and I recommend reading it. Um, Thank you. you mentioned in this book a couple of red flags. And one thing that I really learned in it was to be very careful with the term energy markets. Could you just give a quick look into that before we close? Yes, I think quite often you will see in newspapers particularly that are not keen on the energy transition, you will see the word, the phrase energy market used as though it is a single thing. And it's used in a very, very shallow way. Energy markets in reality in Western countries are very complicated. The national grid in the UK just, just has, 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 oh, I think, The last time was about 15 different markets just to provide services to balance the supply and demand in the grid. Nothing about generation, but all of that just for the balancing of the grid. For example, you know, gas is different from oil, is different from coal, is different from electricity, is different from heat. And different countries, the, the markets function differently as well. So some are global markets, some are local markets. Exactly. And, uh, Exactly. And that's what I think the one difference is what we're seeing with you know, at the moment, oil and gas markets. So oil is a genuinely global market. Gas is a series of regional markets that are increasingly becoming globally connected. And that's not always understood. So when you see the example, the, the argument, which happens in the UK a lot about, well, America, gas is way, way cheaper because they have shale gas. 
No, gas in America is way, way cheaper because there isn't enough LNG infrastructure to ship the gas over to Europe. If they could, then gas would be exactly the same price because, of course, people would choose to sell their gas to Europe and so on. They get, you know, get more money for it, etc. So, yeah, that's that's one of the red flags in the book. Yeah. Many thanks uh, for that. And Ruth, you're about to close us, I think. I think I'm going to try. Um, <laughs> <laughs> not an that easy was, task. No, not an easy task. Um, really, really <laughs> fantastic, Richard. And you know, so many interesting points. But I've just jotted down a few here. My quick summary of the conversation is essentially that the energy transition is possible um, and that there's hope and there's a real reason for optimism. Uh, you touched on the fact that wind and solar are increasing by 20% a year. You talked on about you know some beacons of hope, etc., The second point is throughout our conversation, we talked a lot about this kind of system benefits, how with the energy transition, we can also get to positive health impacts, positive education impacts, positive economic impacts. Of course, peace and security is top of mind for all of us. I think the third thing is really your your spotlight on wind and solar. I found that really fascinating in terms of the feasibility, in terms of the momentum and mind the pun, but the energy behind the wind and solar transition. I want to hold up your points about democratization and access to energy, because I just think those are such critical points. There are reasons that things are being held back. Uh, you talked about, you know, the system not being considered robust enough, planning, challenges, inertia, even the war itself sort of taking minds away. So lots of reasons why it's not happening faster. And then finally, I just bring us back to some of the original points, which is around evidence and the need for evidence. Um, and of course, political will. We can't escape um, the need for really strong political will. So that would be my quick summary. I don't know, Stefan or Richard, if you have anything to add, but... Uh... I think it was an excellent uh, summary, Ruth. And I could just add here the main point that we actually can achieve that transition really brings me back again to one of the last sentences in your book, if I may refer to it again, because you're saying it's a choice. Yeah. And I uh, use that a lot because people don't necessarily think it's a choice. They somehow feel we're doomed either in this way or in that way, or you know, they will decide, I'm not deciding it. No, it's a choice on different levels. And that is the good news, I think. If you can choose, you can also choose to do things differently. Yep, exactly. And just one little factoid to throw in there um, is the doubling of electric car sales in a single year. That is mainly individuals making a decision to do something different. Could be for a whole variety of reasons. We don't know what the balance of those reasons is. But yeah, that's those are the impacts that a single decision can make. Well, first of all, thank you so much, Richard. Um, really fantastic discussion. And for our listeners, please share your feedback on this episode via the platform you're listening on or join the conversation on Twitter at F20 Platform and at Future of Food Org, Instagram, F20 Platform, and of course, LinkedIn. Thank you. <laughs>